ever heard of the, Marcus is like, oh, we're going to do the book of Habakkuk? I said, yeah, it's either Habakkuk or Leviticus. We're just going to see, you know, it's like, what, dude? You guys are way off the map with this. So um, we're going to do a little bit of a study in the book of Habakkuk. And for reasons that I cannot fully tell you, I just feel like the Lord wants to invoke hope. And so uh, Habakkuk is actually a book of hope, whether you believe it or not. And Habakkuk is a book that wrestles with a lot of common questions that people have. Lord, don't you see? Lord, aren't you listening to me? Lord, why don't you answer? That's the question that Habakkuk asks in, in the book of Habakkuk. And so who is this guy? Habakkuk was a prophet in Israel. And the book centers around two conversations. So chapter 1 and chapter 2, he's having conversations with God. And just say this with me. A conversation with Jesus is always a good thing. And so he's frustrated, he's angry, he's letting the Lord know how he feels. And I would say this to you, the Lord would have, rather have you a fullness of how you feel than for you to not talk to him at all. He'd rather let you, he'd rather you tell him what your frustrations are, what you're upset about, what you're not getting. He'd rather let you tell him that in order that he could have an opportunity to respond to you than he would for you to not say anything to him at all which is a lot of times what we do, like religiously, we treat the Lord and we pretend like, oh, I don't want to bother God or I, I should never be angry or I should never show God some kind of an emotion or anything like that. Well, who told you that? That's actually what he wants. It, because what it does when we offer something, when you offer something to God, this is why offering is important in every sense of the word. When you offer to God something, what you're doing is you're bridging something to him that enables him to speak to you. When you do not offer something to him, it makes it near impossible for him to bridge and speak to you. So when you're making your heart known to him, your frustrations and your anger, and you're, you're giving that to him, which is a sense and offering, he's bridging, he has the opportunity now to instruct you. Rather than you walking around angry, 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 angry. It's like, well, he should know why I'm angry. Well, yeah, he knows why you're angry, he knows why you're upset, but he also wants you to tell him that. And you see that again all through scriptures. Jesus is the great one. He, he asks the obvious questions. Why are you angry, Cain? What's the problem? Well, didn't he know why Cain was angry? Of course he knew why Cain was angry. But until Cain told him, it, wasn't, it, wasn't a, it was no opportunity for a dialogue. We have to create an opportunity for dialogue. And really, essentially, what offering is, it's everything we do is unto him. And so when we offer unto him, it gives him an ability to come. That's why worship, when you guys are here and you're worshiping, and what worship is, is we're not just sitting here swaying, singing songs. We're offering ourselves to the Lord. We're singing unto him. And as we're releasing to him, you're giving him an opportunity to minister back to you. When you don't feel the presence of the Lord, start offering him something. Because you're, creating some, you're emptying yourself and you're creating a bridge for him to come back to you. That's why giving, financial giving is another, part, another thing. You give him an opportunity to act in that area on your behalf. It's honor. Honor creates access. And so this book centers around two conversations. Habakkuk is a very faithful man living in a very faithless culture. He has a high sense of justice, and he's living in a world where all he witnesses is injustice. And he's freaked out about it. It bothers him greatly because everywhere there's injustice around him. And so he's asking the Lord, why are you allowing this? It was written approximately 600 years before Jesus. It's a book that has, it's a transition book. It's something that we can understand. Like the first part, you can look at it sort of these ways. He, chapter one, he's asking why. Chapter two, he's waiting. And chapter three, he's worshiping because the Lord has answered him. 
Jesus always answers you. So you know. Say, the Lord never answers. Yeah, he always answers you. He, he always answers. The issue isn't whether the Lord is answering. The issue is, is whether or not you're listening. He goes, chapter 1, you can look at it this way. He's in the valley. Chapter 2, he's in the watchtower. Chapter 3, he's on the mountain. Chapter 1, he's in turmoil. Chapter 2, he's trusting. Chapter 3, he's triumphing. And it tells us this. So just read this portion of it before you get the idea of what's going on here. The burden, of the, the burden which came to the prophet Habakkuk. And so when a prophet would get a word, sometimes they would get a vision. Sometimes they would hear something that the Lord says this. Sometimes they would get a feeling. And in this case, Habakkuk is experiencing a feeling. He's weighted. He feels a weight on him, a burden from the Lord. And so he says, how long, O Lord, will you not hear? We cry, I cry out to you, violence, and you will not save. Why do you show me iniquity? In other words, why do I have to experience all this? Why do I have to see all of this? And you cause me to see trouble, for plundering and violence are ever before me. There is strife and contention arises. Therefore, the law is powerless. Nobody, there's nothing happening here. Nothing is going on here. We could say a lot of this about the church in our generation. Is the spirit powerless to bring transformation? And so he's bringing, he's asking very operative questions that we should actually ask in our thing. The issue was never the Lord, 100% guaranteed. The problem is never on his side of the equation. The problem is always on ours. It wasn't that God was indifferent. It wasn't that God didn't want to do anything. But there were some things that were out of order on the human side that prevented things from happening from the spiritual side. Therefore, the law is powerless and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, therefore perverse judgment proceeds. What he wants to know is, why are these wicked people prospering? Why did she get the promotion? Don't you know I've been here for 10 years? You know, it's kind of like that. Next slide. And so he's asking these questions. The situation, this is the situation in the country. There was a king that was named Josiah. And Josiah brought a revival to the nation. But what Josiah did was the, he brought, uh, I wouldn't even call it reforms, he called it a revival, an awakening of God's spirit back to the country, but he only did it on a surface level. He didn't address the underpinnings of the culture. He didn't address the social, the economic, the circumstantial situations that actually enable a society to stand. And so while Josiah's revival was significant, it didn't go beyond his lifetime because he didn't address the greater issues that enable the culture to stand. And that's why when the church comes into revival, like even when you see an awakening, God's spirit's moving. You see people coming to the Lord. You see things happening. All these things are happening. With the, the church, we're oftentimes so ignorant to understand what the heck we're supposed to do with revival. We think that it's just like a party in the church. Well, revival is to, not, is to awaken God's people to God's purposes. That's a revival. When you are awakened to God's prayer. Oh, I thought it was when people were running around and screaming and yelling and jumping over chairs. No. <laughs> that's an experience, but that's not a revival. A revival is when you are suddenly awakened to a, per to a purpose greater than yourself. When you are, when, and then what, it, what a revival truly is, is when a collective is awakened to a purpose, not an individual. But when all of a sudden a church goes, whoa, this is what we're supposed to do. And, when, and, and then churches go, whoa, this is what we're supposed to do. This is what God wants. And what Josiah failed to do was Josiah, the predecessor to this circumstance, he failed to address the social and economic and the educational issues within his country because all of his predecessors had basically ravaged the country. They had destroyed every foundation. 
Every foundation was gone. The schools were a mess. The government was a mess. The economic plan was a mess. Greed, corruption, courts were corrupt. Everybody was being bribed. It was just this, it was a, they had allowed a corrupt system to come into place. And Josiah addressed the, the revival from the, on the surface of the spiritual, but he didn't go back and address the revival to bring the reformation that God wanted underneath it all. And so that's why it didn't last. And so Josiah dies and his son, Jehoiakim, not a good guy at all, takes the throne. And so clearly there was an issue. And Jehoiakim, as oftentimes happens with these king's kids, is that he was very entitled. He looked at his position not as a position to serve the people. He looked at his position as a position to be indulged. Well, I'm the king. I can do whatever I want. I can take whatever I want. I can do, you know, and that was never, that was never God's idea. And so Jehoiakim takes the throne, and he begins to bring violence, he begins to bring bloodshed, and he begins to bring injustice. God was so against Jehoiakim that his son, who's called Jeconiah, takes the throne, and God didn't, literally didn't want it, and there's a deep teaching here, God literally didn't want anything to do with his family, and he told Jeconiah, no more, Je no more, none of your ancestors will sit upon the throne of Israel. Well, that creates and, and you know, one of the reasons why, the rabbis say that Jeconiah was having an affair with his mother. He was, having, he was a mama's boy in the, in the highest sense of the word. He, and so, it's, it's true. Or the lowest sense of the word, if you want to go there. But he was in an incestuous relationship with his mother. And the Bible is so, it's so, it's so, God doesn't even mention it. And so a lot of theologians wonder, why did God pronounce this over his house? You know, because the Lord doesn't even mention it. Because clearly he did something wrong, and he allowed that to go on for a day. But the rabbis in the Mishnah, they say, this is what Jeconiah did. So the Jews, from their, outs, you know, from their history, they say that's what happened. I mean, the Bible doesn't say that, but the history of the Jewish people, they, they say that's why Jeconiah and his household was outcast. Problem with that is, Jeconiah actually had kids, he had wives, and one of his descendants was none other than Joseph. And Joseph was, of course, Mary's mother, Right, or her husband, and Mary was the mother of Jesus. Jo Joseph was not Jesus' father. So what this presents, okay, this presents a theological problem. Joseph, at the time of Jesus' birth, had the legal right to the throne. You understand that? He had the legal right, but because of a spiritual pronouncement, he was he, none of his ancestors could sit upon the throne. But Jesus was not a descendant of Joseph. He was a blood descendant of Mary. And Mary also was a direct descendant of David. So by blood right, Jesus could be the king of Israel. But by legal right, even though Joseph had that legal right, he was not, his ancestors were not allowed to have it. But what you're, what, what, what you're seeing when this picture is presented is you're seeing the literal impossibility of Jesus being who he is. There's a, like, it, it's, so many times God puts this image up and he shows us who Christ is. And, it and he shows us, do you know how impossible that what, what the birth of Jesus is. And do you know how impossible it is for someone to stand in a position before the people and go, I have a legal right to the throne. Yeah, but your descendant Joseph was disqualified. Yeah, but I have a blood right to the throne. Jesus literally had legal right to the throne, not blood through his father. He had a legal right to the throne of David, and he had a blood right to the throne of David. You couldn't get more qualified to be the king of the Jews than Jesus. He was completely qualified, okay? But it's an interesting thing that God almost allows this to happen. And David's or Joseph's ancestor was this really wicked man. And God writes him off. So it's, oh, well, it's impossible. How in the world is the Messiah going to come through the blood of Jesus because, or the line of David because Jeconiah was rendered childless? Well, God went another way. And he went through another descendant of David. He went through another son of David. 
and he pivoted it, but Jesus was born with blood and legal right. I mean, that's, if you just like, think about that, that's like insane. He wasn't an ancestor to the throne by one descendant. He was an ancestor by two. That's crazy. Nebuchadnezzar, so what's happening? So there's violence and bloodshed. God is silent on the matter. There's all this crazy stuff going on. Nobody cares. Justice is, is forfeited. The courts are corrupt. The people are corrupt. The scales are corrupt. Businesses are corrupt. Everything is existing on bribery. Violence is tolerated. Bloodshed is tolerated. And his problem is, the Lord, don't you see? Don't you see this, Jesus? Are you serious? <laughs> People have a pride. People sometimes they go, now why do you use Jesus' name? Because Jesus wasn't known in the Old Testament. He's the same God yesterday, today, and forever. You understand? And the God that they were worshiping, the Lord, the Adonai that they called upon him, is Yeshua. It's the same God, right? He's in the Old Testament concealed. He's in the New Testament revealed. Same God. I just, I just love using the name of Jesus, so that's it. So you can come here, you want to know who God is. There's no God as you understand him to be. You know, whenever I use God, it's Jesus, 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 Jesus. There will be no confusion. <laughs> Jesus Christ is Lord. He says, the Lord answers, he says, God, and he, he, the Lord answers him, and he says, he's going to deal with it. The Lord says, I'm going to deal with it. So God answers him, and he says, I'm going to deal with it. You don't have to worry about it. But the problem was, is that uh, uh, Habakkuk didn't like the answer. He said, I'm going to bring the Babylonians in and purge the land. And he's like, are you kidding me? The Babylonians are worse than we are. I mean, I know we're sinners, you know, and I know we got some crazy stuff going on, but they're worse. The issue was the issue that was going on here was something that was long time coming. What God, what, what Habakkuk is doing, and this is oftentimes our fatal error, is he is seeing things from an earthly plane. He is looking at what's happening, and he's looking and even trying to understand God from Jesus, the kingdom, from a perspective of, na of the natural mind. And God is seeing it from another point of view. And so he's looking at it on the natural, and he's saying, well, you're going to do this, you're going to do that. What God was doing was he was seeing, he had another plan, and it was from heaven to earth. What had happened was God's going to purge the land because the land was no longer, had not been faithful to him in 490 years. And so he's going to clean out all of the faithlessness, and he's going to use the Babylonians like a broom to sweep everybody out of the land, and then he's going to come back, and he's going to reestablish the land with faithful people. The Jews were removed from the land for 70 years. Why? Because they broke something called a Sabbath law. God told them, every seven years, let the land rest. And for 490 years, they didn't do it. None of them did. The good kings, the bad kings, none of them let the land rest. And so the Lord, they failed to do so. And so what God did is he's saying, listen, you're failing to honor me. I'm going to take away from you that which you're entitled to until you begin to yearn for it again. And he does it, and he, what it ends, it, it had to be in this time period because it's a cycle of sevens, 70 times seven. They had reached a 490-year mark, and they had failed to be faithful to the, to the Lord in what he had told them to do. So you, you, 70 times seven, that sounds familiar, right? And he, Peter's like, how many times should I forgive somebody? Three times? That's, like, that's what the rabbis taught. You only forgive somebody three times. That's it. So if you sin against me three times, that's all I'm obligated to you to forgive. And so Peter thought he's being magnanimous, you know. I, you know I'll, I'll, how many times, Lord? And Jesus said 70 times seven. 
And so this is 490 years. God's going to let the, let, the, let, the, let the earth rest. And see, new Bible numbers are very important. We have 10 cycles of seven. 10 is the number of testing. So numbers in the scriptures are significant. They're not arbitrary. When God uses a number, he means what he says, and he says what he means. And so anything that's attached to a cycle of 10 is attached to a cycle of testing, and it's also attached to a cycle of perfection. 10 is, 10 is infinity, and 10 is testing. 40 days, 4 times 10. 40 days God visited the flood upon the earth. 4 is the number of the earth, times 10. So he tested and put testing upon the earth. 40 is also, 40 is also the number of visitation. So if you look at 40 in the Bible, 40 was when he visited the flood, right? In 40 weeks, you have ladies. What happens after 40 weeks when you're pregnant? You get a little visitor. The number of visitation. Oh, look, I have a visitor. Number of visitation. That's, that's the standard cycle of, of, you know, we go before and after, you know, various things, you know, medically, but typically the average is 40 weeks. And there's a reason for that. 70 times 7, so it's perfect testing. God had perfectly tested his people to see if they were going to be faithful with what he had asked them to do, and he tested them perfectly, and no one responded. They didn't respond to what he asked. Why, were they, why did God require a Sabbath rest? Number one, it was to show forth honor. We show forth honor. Honor creates access. Honor is to esteem something or someone higher than you, right? When we honor the Lord, we tell ourselves we're not everything. We're not the bees. We're not, we're not the top of the world here. So they honored the Lord. They were to show honor. They were to also refocus the nation away from common worship or common work. That's what Sunday is. You know what Sunday is? Sunday is a, it's a Sabbath rest, even though we're not under law, and I'll talk about that in a second. But Sunday is to refocus you away from common work and to refocus you to who you truly are in the spirit. It's the day I say we get our head put on straight. It's not about common work. You're more than a machine. You're a son. You're a daughter. You have an heir. You have an, you're an, you have an inheritance. You have a, you, there's, this is who you are. You're to refocus yourself and go forth from that place. So they were to take that year and refocus the nation away from common work and refocus the nation back towards worship. It was also to show forth miracle power. So God was going to demonstrate miracle power to the nations. He's going to say, my nation will not work for a year. No one, no one, the land will lay rest and my people will not work and they will party for one year and they'll be more blessed than they've ever been. It's true. So what did this come with like, yeah. <laughs> that's what we are. You know, I mean, look, statistically, right? So somebody says, oh, you're going to talk about Christian chicken? Yeah, I am going to talk about Christian chicken. Statistically, if you look at the fast food business, right? Chick-fil-A is the most profitable fast food restaurant, bar none. And they're closed one day of the week. And they don't close. They close. They say, well, we, you know, people say, well, they're just giving their employees a rest. But the founder of the company said, no, we're going to honor God with this business from the beginning. That, that restaurant should be probably third or fourth place as far as revenue goes, but they're not. You ever go to Chick-fil-A? I mean, you go to Chick-fil-A in a liberal, leftist, nobody cares about Jesus area, and they're still aligned. I'm like, what is it with this place? It's like a magnet, you know what I mean? And I mean, the food's good, but it's not like, you know, let's beat the door down to get that chicken sandwich. You know? There's favor on it. See, there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a favor, there's a, there's a draw, and there's an attraction to it for no particular reason. Because they honor the Lord. You see? That's the issue. And so when we honor God, a favor comes over us for no particular reason. 
People look at you, you get, you know, you become noticed, you know, your whether your work, Bible says, blessed in your blessed in your coming in, blessed in your going out, blessed in your kneading basket, blessed in your blessed what you put your hand to. It's this entire Deuteronomy 17, this entire chapter of blessing. God said, I'm gonna bless you in the city, I'm gonna bless you in the country. Christian, you should operate with favor. The way favor is activated over your life, you have favor. Okay? It's like favor, but favor is activated through honor. Understand that? We make these proclamations that are true. Oh, I'm highly favored of the Lord. Yes, you are. But is that favor active? That's the issue. We, you're favored of Jesus. Say, we all have the Holy Spirit. Absolutely. When you come to Christ, you get the Holy Spirit. But my question is, is the Holy Spirit active? You live the Holy Spirit, be dormant. You know what I mean? I mean, for some of you, it's just like he's just like a vacation home. He's just take, he comes to you to take a nap. You know what I mean? Because there's, there's nothing that you do to, to activate him in any way. There's no partnership with him in any way. But you have him. You have favor, but favor is not activated. So the issue is, if we, this is, this is the question. These are the questions the church has to address. If Jesus, this is, I go to healing all the time. Why do you go to healing, Kevin? Because this, this is an issue. If he tells us that we can heal the sick and that he, we are to heal the sick, why aren't we? Well, God doesn't want us to. Our paradigm is completely wrong. There is something that we are not doing, or there's a way that we're not going about it that is not allowing it to be activated. And it, and it comes through ignorance. You have an entire nation of people that are ignorant to the Sabbath law. Ignorant. The blessing, was rem the blessing was not active in their life. The favor was not active in their life because they were ignorant to a principle that God had put over them as a nation. That Sabbath law is not over us, but it is over the nation of Israel, or was over them. And so God had put, an, uh, put this over them, and they were ignorant to it, and therefore it was not active. And it actually worked against them. The people were ignorant. They were indifferent to spiritual principles. Wow. And they failed to reap the blessings that were given. Ignorance to spiritual principles disables us from reaping the benefits that God has promised. I mean, we can talk about blessing all day long. I mean, I'm all in, you know. You say, is this the Bless Me Club? Yes, it is, and I'm president of the local chapter, okay? I am president of the local Jesus Bless Me Club. I am. You say, well, why do you talk like that? Because Jesus gave his blood to release and activate blessing into the lives of his people. And if he thought it important enough to give his blood so that you could have it, then it is important enough for me to understand how to get it going and how to get it working. And it should be that important to you. The Bible makes promises, does it not? It makes declarations over our lives. But, so the question is, is not whether or not there's a declaration. The question is, is why don't we see that? Why isn't that active in our life? Well, God must not want me to have it. That's a lie. That's a wrong paradigm, and you're believing a lie. You have to look and say, what is it that, where is it that I'm out of a line? Where is it, what is it that I'm missing? Where, where is the disconnect from my end? The disconnect is not his. It's ours, if you understand that. So Josiah had died. Where are we? Okay, so they failed to read the blessings. Next slide. They were indifferent. They didn't care. So we have a principle of seven. Seven is the number of completion. Seven is a very sacred number. It's six around seven. That's something God does all the time. Six around seven. Six around seven. Six is the number of man. Seven is the number of completion. So we have the six. We have the star of David. It's six, seven points, or six points around one. So it's six, six around one. We have six days in a week around one. Seven is sacred. Seven is actually the beginning or the new beginning. It's the completion, and it begins again. We have a principle of 10. Six around one is also a principle of firsts. We start over. 
We first fruit. You give him the first day of the week. You give him the first fruits. Ten is the number of testing. Ten is the number of infinity. Ten is a consistent number in the Bible. We have ten virgins that were tested with preparedness. Right? Ten virgins in the Bible. Not all of them put oil on their lamp. They were tested with their readiness. We have ten lepers. Ten lepers were tested with gratitude. Jesus heals not twelve, not eight, not seven and a half. Right? He heals ten. And it's a test of gratitude. Nine went forth, one returned. So they were tested with gratitude. They were tested not just with their faith to believe him, they were tested with their gratitude for what they had received. We have ten generations before Noah, so there was a testing before the flood. Ten generations were tested. Ten commandments. Ten plagues. Egypt was tested with repentance ten times. Right? Then we, of course, have the tithe. The tithe is a number of testing. I knew you were going to go there. I knew it. I knew it. (laughs) Others are like, oons, oons, go there, Kevin. (laughs) Ten is the number of testing. Do you trust God with your finances? Give the tithe. Oh, I trust God with my finances, but you don't tithe? You don't trust him. It's just truthful. Let's just be honest. It's okay. We can all be honest. It's all right. What it means is that there is a weakness and area of faith in your life. And what it means is it's not an area of condemnation. You're not to look at yourself in condemnation. You're to examine yourself and say, what lie am I believing that I can't trust God? What am I believing? I'm believing a lie that I can't trust God in this area. And you have to, you have to, Jesus isn't revealing something to you to beat you on the head with it. He's revealing something to you in order to help you get past it in order to help you move forward with it, right? People have a hard time. I don't tell them to church consistently. I come once a month. I like to dip around. You have to ask yourself, what lie do I believe that tells me God is not worthy of a day of my life? He's worthy of every day, of every minute, every hour. He's worthy of every second. He's worthy of every breath you take, okay? He's worthy of all of that. And we have to ask ourselves, what is the lie that I believe? What is the lie that I believe that keeps me from forming myself into a, into a community with other people? Oh, I believe people will hurt me, or I believe I'm not accepted, or I believe I'm too, I'm too you know, whatever that lie is, that, that's what it's revealing. It's revealing a point in your life where there is a lie. Jesus is truth, okay? He's truth. Truth confronts lies. Light confronts darkness. And what we allow the devil through religious spirits to do is instead of manifesting a spirit of truth and love, we allow the devil to manifest a spirit of condemnation and guilt over the people, to where people feel guilty, beaten down. And what God wants you to do is look at your life in truth and go, Lord, what is it about me that I can't come to church? What is it about me that I can't offer the, I can't offer the tithe to you? What is it about me that I can't do this? Or I can't, what, what, when God is calling us to something and we can't do it, we have to realize there's a lie there. Something is preventing you. You believe that you are the sufficient one. Well, that's a lie. Good luck with that. You believe that God won't provide for you. That's a lie. You believe you're not worthy of his provision. That's a lie. You believe God will let you fail. That's a lie. All of those things are lies. And they say they feel so real. Exactly. Reality and truth are two different things. What you feel is your reality. What is true is not, is not, is not reality. Truth is not reality, people. It's just not. We pursue truth until truth becomes the reality. So the Lord is willing. They were not willing to honor him. The Lord is to be first in all things. They, were led, they, they, they led 70 years by law, 
and they lived, they, they had disallowed, they had not fulfilled the covenant. Seventy years was owed to the Lord or the land by law. And so they lived outside of the possession that they did not value. How many of us as Christians live outside of the possessions that we don't value? I mean, he's given us possessions. One of the big, greatest prayers in the Bible is found in Ephesians chapter 1. And Paul goes off, and it, we treat it like it's a poem. That you would know the height, the depth, the width, and the breadth, the hope of his calling. You know, we just walk around like, sing, and we, we, queed it, we, we speak it with eloquence. If you really want to know what he's saying, he's saying, my prayer for you is that you get it. My prayer for you is that you understand what he has given you, that you would understand what the richnesses are of the inheritance in the saints, what the richness of your inheritance is. That's what he's asking for. That's what he's praying for. And many of us, we live outside of, outside of possessions or blessings because we don't value it. We're either ignorant to it or, we don't, or we're indifferent towards it. I mean, you've got to make up your mind. Somewhere along the line, you've got to make up your mind. For me, I make up my mind. I'm like, if Jesus says I can have it, I want it. And I'm going to run this race, and I'm going to see if this stuff is true. This is where theological argument all goes right out the window. People want to talk about theology and they want to talk about principles and viewpoints of men. And I'm like, if it's a truth, it can be experienced. It can be experienced. And if it's experienced, then it is 100% established as truth. It doesn't matter what theology says. It doesn't matter that say, oh, well, it doesn't matter. You know, it doesn't matter to say, oh, well, you know, I don't know, pick one. It doesn't matter what people say. You know, as a po- well, oh, here's one of my favorites. Well, Jesus has done all the work, Pastor. We just don't have to do anything. That's one of my all-time favorites. What God's going to do, what God's going to do. And we talk about this arcing sovereignty of God, and we forget that he has endowed us with personal responsibility into his promises. You're saved, right? So you come to Christ. Jesus did the work, but until you take personal responsibility and step in, you don't inherit salvation. And that's the same thing across the board with everything. Everything is the same way. Here's the promise. And you have to take personal responsibility and step into it. And we know it's true because we can experience it. If Jesus died, and here's the ecumenical argument, Jesus died for the whole world, therefore the whole world saved. Are you kidding me? There's a complete difference between a born-again believer and a non-born-again believer. A complete difference. And you can even testify of your life because when you came to Christ, the light came on. You came alive, and you can, you can know by experience that that is a truth. Truth testifies of the, or the experience testifies of the truth. Israel's a nation, so here's a point, here's a point of understanding, okay? So this is a point of understanding, so I'm going to jump out, I'm going to go out on a limb again on this one, but why not? What, what's, what, what's, why not? It's fun. Let's just do it. Israel is a concept and a nation, Israel is a twofold understanding within the scriptures. It is both a nation and it is a concept. You and I, being born again, are grafted into the concept of Israel. None of us are national Israelis. It's true, okay? But yet the Bible tells us that we're in Israel. We've been grafted in. So it is a concept. What does Israel mean? It means prince and princesses of God. So there's a concept that God designed that those who come to him would come into into alignment with the concept or whatever you want to call it, with the construct of God's intention that we are princes and princesses before him, that we are sons and daughters. So that's one side of it. The other side of it is a national, is a nation. So God made a nation. He made a covenant with a nation. The covenant, in particular, the national covenant that he made with Israel is different from the covenant that he makes with us 
through the New Testament. It's entirely different. All right? Where am I going? They were not obedient, and they didn't value what they had been given. So God gave them something, and they, didn't obe- were, they were not obedient to it, and they didn't value it, therefore they lost it. And so what ends up happening, let me try to go back to this. All right, so the, nation, the national covenant. God makes a nation, he makes an, I think it's further ahead in the notes, but we'll hit it anyway. The nation of Israel, that he makes a covenant with the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel has disobeyed that covenant, and they've broken trust with him. And they broke, and they're, they're actually isolated from the things that he had originally intended for them to have. God eventually will come forth, and he will atone for Israel's national sin. Israel committed a national sin. They told, they told uh, Pilate, we have no king but Caesar. They rejected the Messiah. They told, they told Pilate, his blood be upon our head and upon our children. They invoked a national sin upon their nation. It doesn't mean that Jewish people can't get saved. There's many people here that are actually Jewish descent. That's not what it's saying. People can get saved being a Jew, but there's a, there's a sin that, is ha- that hangs over that nation, and that sin is the rejection of their Messiah, which causes a blindness to come upon them nationally. Doesn't mean God doesn't favor them. Doesn't mean God's not working on their behalf but they are completely blind. And there will come a day when God will atone for that sin. He will atone for the, it's called the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. God will atone for the national sin of Israel. And Jesus said, you will look upon, the Bible tells us in Zechariah, you will look upon me in whom you have pierced. And you will, look up, you will gaze upon me as a lost son, as a lost begotten son. And what, it looks, what, it, what it's intending to reflect is back when Joseph's brothers saw him, and when they saw Joseph standing in Pharaoh's position, or in second in Pharaoh's position, the, the brothers of Joseph saw him, and it says a veil was lifted from their eyes. They're going to look upon Jesus in that time. God's going to make an atonement, and they're going to be able to recognize him and that he was with them all along. And he was their Messiah all along. Now, does that mean that they will all get saved? No, but a lot will. Am I making sense here? Okay. We don't teach this in church anymore. This is like a quiet, you know, we teach, uh, I call them sitcom sermons. It's true. Sitcom sermons. Do, 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 like friends, you know, we just have, you know, it's like, it's like, you know, and we don't ever go, we don't ever get deep. Because you know why people, you know, pastors, friends of mine, they don't want to go deep. You know why? See, I happen to have a different perspective. They don't think you can handle it going deep. They don't think, they literally don't believe the people can digest theology. And so therefore, it's all candies and popcorn and bubble gum and, you know, ice cream cones on Sunday morning because they don't believe that people can digest theology. Well, you can't go, oh, no, I would edit that. Oh, I wouldn't. Oh, I would never go. Oh, no, I wouldn't talk about that either. I'm like, well, I happen to believe that the people have the Holy Spirit. And I happen to believe that the Holy Spirit likes steak and eggs. You know? He wants a little protein in the morning. You know what I'm saying? You know? (laughs) They were not obedient. So here's the thing. They were not obedient. They did not value what God gave them. God gave them the glory. They didn't value the glory. The glory left. The book of Ezekiel. Glory left them. They didn't value the land, and so the land was taken from them. They didn't value salvation, and salvation was taken from them. Nationally. I'm talking nationally here. For all are not descendants from Israel who belong to Israel. So here's the idea. We have descendants of Israel, and we have Israel. So what he's saying, not everybody in Israel is Israel. So not everybody in the nation of Israel is part of the concept or the construct of Israel. The spirit, the identity of sons and daughters of God, not everybody who's in the nation is a son and daughter of God. You understand what it's saying? So it's saying we have, nation, we have a national concept of Israel and we have a spiritual concept. God told Abraham you will have sons and daughters and they will be like the stars of the heaven and the sands of the sea. Whoa, I'm going to jump right down here. Run over here. 
He's talking about, he's talking about you're going to have children that, are, that live on an earthly plane, and you're going to have children that live on a spiritual plane. Your children will be like the stars of the heaven and the sands of the sea. It's a prophetic proclamation of the, of the difference between the sons and daughters of the ancestors. You and I are ancestors of Abraham, even though we're not blood descendants. The Bible says if you be in Christ, you are Abraham's seed. You understand? So we're sons and daughters of Abraham, and it goes further. We're sons and daughters of Abraham, and we're heirs according to the promise. We're heirs according to the promise that God had made over the concept of Israel, which we would be blessed in our coming in, blessed in our going out, all of that. It says, the hardening has come upon the nation of Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, but all of Israel will be saved. So I used to have some Jewish friends, and I would talk to them about Jesus, and they wouldn't believe me in Jesus. They wouldn't believe that Christ was the Messiah, but they would always quote me this verse. Well, if you're right, then all of Israel will still be saved. I'm like, no, they won't. Not all of Israel will be saved, dude. And he would quote this verse, and I would say, Israel, the nation of Israel has to convert into the concept of Israel. They have to repent and come to Christ. That's how you go from a nationality into a spirituality. You, you translate through Jesus. You and I are more Israel than the Jew is, the non-converted Jew is. To God, he sees us. Does he have a covenant over, his, over the nation? Yes. Are there unfulfilled things that he is going to perform over the nation? Yes. Is he finished with the nation of Israel? No. But you and I are more in favor with the Lord than a person who's blood-born as a Jew. Now, if the person gives their life to Christ, they come into the family, all good. But several people here are Jewish, lots of them. Okay? So it doesn't mean that the Jew is not going to get saved, but we're ta I'm talking about a national thing going on here. And that's what happened when that's what made them get vacated from the land is they had broke covenant nationally. Next slide. All can be saved, but not all will. The people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. They shouted, away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate asked, shall I crucify your king? And they said, we have no king but Caesar. The chief priest replied, because what Pilate's saying is, I'm innocent of his blood. His blood is innocent. I will, not, I will not be responsible for shedding innocent blood. And they said, we'll take it. <laughs> Bad move. <laughs> Bad move. And God will re reconcile that sin on the Day of Atonement. I did a Passover. Somebody invited me. We used to do Passover. We used to do Jesus in the Passover. And I got invited to go to uh, Aventura, right? It's this lady here. She's um, very had a heart for Jewish people, whatever. She very, was very wealthy, so she rented a big upper floor of this condo building in, in uh, Aventura. And there's a lot of Jewish people living in Aventura. I don't know if you're aware of that or not. There's a lot. And the whole place, I mean, we had about maybe 15, 20 people came from the church. And there was probably 80 people in the room. And all of them were Jewish. All of them. I mean, I had a rabbi there. I mean, I went to the bathroom like five times before I did the Seder, right? One guy was a Holocaust survivor. He came up and showed me the tattoo. He was an old man. And he came and he brought special matzah. And we told him, it's Jesus in the Passover. That was the concept, Jesus in the Passover. And they came because they're like, oh, that, that would be different. That would be interesting. I'm not, we've been to many Passovers. These are people who have had a Passover their whole life. They've been to Seders all the way through, right? So a Seder is nothing new to them. And I presented Jesus in the Passover, and it was amazing. And I, sh I shared with them this. I said, there's a blindness over the nation of Israel because of a national rejection of him. And I said, that's why the nation is blinded to who their Messiah is. And I said, that has to be repented for, and it has to be recounted. And that's what I told them. And I didn't even, everybody's like, all the people from Elevate were like, did he just say that? And I'm like, yeah. And then I talked with several of them afterwards. I had one guy, this is a crazy story, but it's worth saying. One guy, English guy, Jewish English guy, had really big sideburns. His wife comes up to me and stands next to me and goes, 
because in Jewish culture, the patriarch of the family conducts the Seder. So the eldest male is the one who conducts the Seder, right? So he was the eldest male in his family. And he said, every year for the last 15 years, I've gone to London. And he said, and I've performed a Passover for my family. And he said, this is the only year in 15 years that he didn't go to, his wife is telling me, that he didn't go to London to perform the Passover. And she goes, and he, we came here. And she's like, I find that interesting. And he looks at me and goes, I was riveted. I was absolutely riveted. <laughs> then I had the Sephardic rabbi who asked me to come over and sit down next to him, right? And so I'm sitting there with all of them and we're talking and one lady was married to Orthodox and she's saying, you really need to share this with the Orthodox. She's like, have you ever, sh you ever thought of talking to the Orthodox about it? I'm like, you know. I'll talk to anybody about it. You want to, you know, talk about it. But the, the rabbi came over, and they're all coming over to greet the rabbi. Oh, hey, rabbi, rabbi, how are you? It's so nice to see you. And everybody's coming over to greet the rabbi. And he goes, he goes, I am no rabbi. He goes, this man is a rabbi. <laughs> I thought, yeah, that was cool. No, I wasn't. Even. I was very honored. No, I was very honored. I mean, I, I completely, I didn't set that meeting up. I just, I just walked into the room. I didn't know what she had set up. And when I walked into the room, and she starts introducing me. This is Rabbi Shmiel from, da, da, da. I'm like, Hey, how you doing? You're coming tonight? Yeah, I'm coming. This is Caroline. She's married to an Orthodox rabbi named I'm like, oh, okay, you coming tonight? Oh, and this is Abraham. He's a Holocaust survivor. He's like, yes. He shows me his tattoo. I'm like, oh my gosh, where in the world? You know, I had no idea where I was. But I talked to them about the Day of Atonement. I talked to them about the fulfillment of Yom Kippur and that it's not just a holiday. It is the atonement for the national sin of the people. God will come on the Day of Atonement. He will make atonement. There will be an event that transpires that enables God to atone for the national sin, and he will reveal himself to them fully, and the blindness of the veil will be lifted. It's just a fact. So in the Old Testament law, if you, cut, if you, if you sinned, you were cut off, and you couldn't return without penalty. So they had sinned, and so now the penalty of that sin was now invoked. They had to leave the land for 70 years. In the New Testament, the law is fulfilled. Your acceptance is complete. This is important to know. Your acceptance in Christ is complete. It is not, your acceptance is not based upon what you do or what you don't do. You are accepted in the beloved. You are loved, loved, say it with me, I am loved, loved, loved. He is for me, he is not against me. Jesus will never, never, never reject me, ever. You might reject yourself, but you, he will never reject you, ever. That's why it says if our heart condemns us, he's greater than our heart. You know, he'll never reject you. Acceptance is complete. God's faithfulness to you is no longer based on you. If, he's, if you're faithless, if we're faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. Even if you're faithless, God will still be faithful to you. That's an amazing concept, you know, which takes away all. There's, there's therefore now no condemnation in those who are in Christ Jesus. We should never be under guilt, shame, or condemnation of any kind, ever. You say, if I sin, well, you might feel some guilt in the fence of the action that you committed or you did or the ignorance or whatever it may be or the arrogant act, and all the Bible tells us to do is return it to Jesus. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us immediately. It's without condition. I didn't say you didn't have to kind of reconcile the wrongs that you did, but you're never condemned in the sense that you're rejected. There is no action you can commit as a believer that exiles you from the covenant that he makes with you. Nothing. Because it's not based upon you. The blood of Christ saves us to the uttermost, the Bible tells us. You're completely saved. 
And the disconnect is that we don't know who we truly are. We live like, like what heaven does not say we are. What transforms the person's life is when they know that they are accepted. They take the position of acceptance. Then they take the position of acceptance and they begin to understand, I'm a son before my father. You need to take the position that he offers you. You already have it. You're not, you're not a son or a daughter because you accept. If you're in Christ, you're a son. If you're in Christ, you're a daughter. He gave it to you. It doesn't mean you're living like it. It doesn't mean you've even embraced it. What changes us is to know that we're loved and to begin to see yourself as the daughter of the highest. Begin to see yourself as the son of the highest and begin to live towards your identity. Begin to live from acceptance and towards your eternal destiny as a son. I'm a son. I'm, you know, I, my blood doesn't flow of the earth. I tell people that all the time. My blood flows from heaven. I'm born of the spirit. My father is, my, that's my father. That's who I am. I'm not who the world says I am. I'm not who I think I am. I'm not even who my family says I am. That's a big conflict with my family. They always want to put me back in the old box. I'm like, I'm not that person anymore. That's not me. I heard about that guy. He died long ago, you know? He keeps trying to come back into my life every now and then. He shows up at the door like a zombie. Oh, I'm the old Kevin there. <laughs> Killed a zombie, right? We live towards our identity. That's what changes us. Next slide. There's measure, there's fullness. So in Christ, so what, what you're given measure, all of us are given measure. A measure of faith, we're given the fullness of the Holy Spirit, but most of us operate from it from a point of measure, right? So measure is upon every believer, but fullness is not upon every believer. And here we're going to come right up against some theological cows. I don't have a lot of theologians in this room, because they're normally, when you, if I was to say this in a group of pastors, I would immediately get responses, Everything I'm telling you pushes against the, the, the dogmas that the church teaches. They teach dogmas. You, they say, well, no, we have the fullness right now. Yeah, where is it in your life, brother? Let's point to it. Point to the fullness. I didn't say it's not on you. My question isn't whether it's on you. My question is whether it's active. All of you are heirs to fullness. You understand? You have fullness right now. You have a full tank of gas in your car sitting outside that can take you anywhere you want to go and you have the keys in your pocket. But until you get up from the chair, put the key in the door, open it, start the motor and drive, nothing's happening. All the potential in the world is there. But nothing's, well, I have fullness. Yeah, you do. You absolutely do. You have a vehicle that will take you into destiny. You have a full tank of gas and you have the means by which to operate it. But you're not doing it. Therefore, you have measure. You don't have fullness. We have then what fullness comes from is a willingness to obey and engage the promises, a willingness to obey what the Lord says, a willingness to see ourselves as he sees us, and a willingness to see the world as he sees us, to see the kingdom as he sees, and to beginning to believe that God is a promise keeper and begin to lay hold of his promises, own them, and press into the promises. That's what faith is, trusting for the promises of God. Jesus said, will I find faith on the earth when he comes? He's not talking about, will I find believers? That's not what he's asking. Will I find anybody pressing into what I said? Will I find anybody trusting me for what I told them they could have? That's what he's asking. We teach Buddhism in our churches. We don't teach gospel. The, the churches, that we either teach, we, <laughs> I'm not going to go there. I'm going to go there, and I'm like, I'm not going there. Okay. Yeah, I know. No, I'm not going there. I'll go here. <laughs> We teach Buddhism. We just need to be at one. We just need to be at peace. We just need to be satisfied. We just need to be content. 
Buddhism is the absence of things. It's the oneness where we're just completely serene with emptiness and nothingness. That's what we teach the God. The, God, the Holy Spirit is not, he's not a God of nothingness. You desire because you have the spirit of desire in you. You are hungry because you have a ravenous lion inside of you who wants more. You want to lead because he's put that in you. You want to win because he's never been defeated. That's it. Well, we don't want to win, Pastor. We don't want to win. We don't want to, we don't, we don't want to believe God for too much. Why? Because you're afraid of being disappointed? You're a coward. You're a coward. I don't fear failure. I fear no failure. I tell people, call me coward, but you won't call me, you, won't, you, you will call me fool, but you won't call me coward. I will re refuse to be a coward. I will press in, and if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. If I fail, I fail. Who cares? I'm going to go again. And that's who you are. And you have to give yourself permission to let the Spirit of God, just because you desire, doesn't mean your desires are aligned. We try to kill desire within the church. Desire is of the Spirit. We want because he's in us. It doesn't, our, the, but the desire that we have may not be aligned with him truly from his heart. But the desire itself is not wrong. The desire may be centered in self, but that doesn't mean desire is wrong. Do you understand that? Some of you ladies in particular, you desire to be married. There's nothing wrong with that. God wants you. There's nothing wrong with that desire. Well, you just need to be content in Jesus. Jesus is your husband, and you just need to be content with him. Yeah, but no, right? <laughs> the desire is there because he put it there. How you go about it might be the wrong way, but the desire is right. What you do with it is up to you. What you need to do is partner with that with him. And most of you, and this is not even in relationships, you don't make your desires known to the Lord. You don't. You don't even know what you want. It's true. When you know what you want, then you can tell him what you want, and you can watch him meet you at where you want. You can watch him. But until you know what you want, and I'm not saying, well, I just want to be married. And I told the Lord I want to be married. Well, what's he look like? What's she look like? What does that mean? You know, what, what does that mean to you? Do, you know, and so, again, lazy Christians, we inherit nothing. This is why we inherit nothing, because we're lazy and not specific. <laughs> exactly, make your list. Some of you want a business. You want to you say, I want, to, I want to be an entrepreneur and I want this. I've seen it happen time and again. When you are specific in what you want and you tell him, and you, it's like this. Here's the desire. Lord, this is what I want. He takes it, he looks at it, he gives it back to you in a modified form. That's what he does. He'll give it back to you, he'll go, or he'll go, this isn't complete, I need more information. You have to give him the details. Well, I'm believing God for this. It's too generic, man. He doesn't, Jesus doesn't work in generics. Have you seen the detail that he creates with? He works in detail. He works in 4K, right? It's true. So the, the quest is that for you to understand and know what it is that you want, we, again, we don't even, we don't know what we want. And if you don't know what you want, then you need to ask God, what do I want? Begin to awaken me. I've died to my dreams. I've died to desire. I've died to hope long ago. Awaken me. He's the spirit of resurrection, people. And then you tell him, what is it that I want? And you're going to start, it's, it's this constant exchange of partnership until you reach this point. 
and then you give it to them. And then once you've reached this understanding, okay, that we're clear, this is, this is where we're going, then you ask them, how do I get there? Then it's a series of questions. You can't do it without the Holy Spirit. I don't know why we think that we can do any of this without the Holy Spirit. You know? Five principles mean nothing. I can give you five principles to a better life. Wonderful. I'll give you those, but you're going to need to partner with the Holy Spirit or those principles don't mean anything. We have to have the whole, that's why he's given to us. Anyway. (laughs) Truth is evidenced by experience. Thomas is asking, so okay, there's many rooms in your father's house. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to wrap it up right here. We We have measure and we have fullness. Jesus said, in my father's house there are many rooms, many mansions. I go there now to prepare a place for you that where I am there I will also be. And if I go there, then I will come back again and I will take you and you'll be there. Okay, here again, going to come right up on theology, right? <laughs> we teach this as an afterlife concept. Oh, and my father, when we get to heaven, we're all going to get our mansion in heaven. That's a future reality. It's true, but it's also a present reality. Jesus is giving you a word for those who have ears to hear. You'll hear it. For those who are too dull, it'll go right over your head. Or you'll rustle and go, I don't know if that's true. Well, that's fine. It's fine. I go to the mountain. You stay in the valley. That's fine. You can go to the mountain too. You just have to. But God's saying in my father's house, there's many, there are rooms and places of access and possessions that you can have. And I go there now to prepare it for you. Oh, that's in the sweet by and by. No, that is in the, that is in the rotten here and now. There are realms of God that we can go to. There are levels that we can experience with God. You say, how do you know this? Because it's justified and verified by experience. We can see that we go to places and dimensions and we can grow in the spiritual ways and go to these places and enter these rooms of occupancy. There are people who have entered a room of occupancy of financial blessing, that everything they do is blessed because they occupy a territory that's theirs. How did they get there? Well, that's not true. There's not realms. That's just a special favor. No, it's yours too. It's yours too. Jesus, when he brings you into something, you are not there as a visitor. It is your occupy. He gives it to you to occupy. It's yours forever. Forever. Is that, am I making sense here? Or am I talking to myself? I don't, I'm not sure. I just want to make sure I'm making I don't know. It's like, it's a big concept. I don't want to make sure I'm making sense with it. And so the idea is that there are places in God. You cannot just live at the level of measure. My thing is here is you can go to a level of fullness. You can go into rooms and realms and experiences and dimensions with God that he has for you. You can go into a level of peace that you've never experienced. And that peace is now yours eternally. You can go to a level of wisdom that you've never experienced. And that wisdom is now yours eternally. You can go to a level of deliverance and freedom that you've never experienced. And that's now yours eternally. You don't have to knock to go in the door anytime. It's yours. It's true. These things are evidenced by experience. So we know this to be true. We can enter these places. And Thomas says, how in the world do we go there? And Jesus said, through me. In partnership with me, I'll take you there. Intimacy. Hear, see, and feel as he does. What is he saying? What is he doing? Intimacy with the Lord. Next slide. Habakkuk and the people had lost their vision. They had lost their hope. They had lost their intimacy with the God. They're off. The, the biggest problem in the book of Habakkuk with all of the people is they viewed life from an earthly plane. That's their biggest problem. And that's oftentimes ours. We're naturally minded. Jesus said, on earth as it is in heaven. So what he's telling us is it's an attitude, it's a mindset, it's a way of thinking, it's a way of perceiving from his world to ours. There's no limitations in heaven. I don't know if you're aware of that. God is a limitless God. There's never, Jesus, the kingdom has never been defeated. There's no need, there's no discord, there's no dissension in heaven. Is there? I mean, there was, but Jesus, I mean, the Lord kicked it out. Satan, out of here. Later, dude. Pow, you're gone. 
There's no division. There's unity. There's harmony. There's peace. There's blessing. There's provision. There's abundance. There's purpose. There's higher things. And so if it's there, it's going to be yours. It's yours too. It's yours, it's yours to, to, to experience. It's yours to encounter. The question is, is whether you want it. The vision and the purposes of God, the kingdom vision, Habakkuk only saw from his perspective. That's the problem. God saw from the huge, bigger perspective. He's saying, I have, you guys have sinned. The law of sin and death requires this, so I'm going to sweep the king. I'm just going to, I'm going to do it all wholesale. I'm going to sweep the land out. I'm going to send you away for 70 years, and I'm going to find after 70 years, is anybody faithful? Does anybody want to believe me? And he sent the faithful people back to establish the land again after 70 years. You have to under, here's a big thing. You have to understand your story. You have to understand your story, your purpose in the story. You have to understand God's purpose in the world. God, what is the Lord doing? What does he want? What is he saying? What, that's a concept. Then you have to understand where you fit within that story. You have to live courageously towards your purpose, towards your destiny by his spirit. This is, this is how the church becomes awakened. We don't become awakened by being drones in the chair. Every one of you is created on purpose with a purpose. You have a unique and intimate destiny with him in the time in which you live. You live in this time, in this season, for a reason. There is a purpose. There's a reason why you're in the world. There's an assignment for you, whatever that may be. It might be a series of assignments. It might be a long-tail assignment that takes you years to achieve. But regardless, that you have an assignment and we're to understand that God has a purpose. So here's the vision. God has a purpose. He has a kingdom that he wants to bring. And God has a purpose for you individually. And you're to understand that. That is a huge, that is probably one of the biggest pieces that you can do to live a, like a transformed life and a kingdom life. What does God have for you? What does he have for you? And this is a big conversation. I'll probably end up doing a series on it. because I, I can't unpack it. But the, and you need to live courageously towards your purpose. I've spent most of my life living out of line with what God, I knew God to tell me. I knew he told me, but I didn't want what he told me. Oh, Kevin, that's just, I can't believe that's not spiritual. Really? How are you doing with it? Do you even know what he's told you? That's my first question. And then my second question is, is are you living with everything you got towards it? Right? If not, then don't, be, don't, don't throw rocks at me. <laughs> I, know what he to, I knew what he told me. He told me to do what I'm doing now. Right? But I didn't want to do it because my paradigm was wrong. I thought I had to be like every other nerdy guy and egotistical megalomaniac pastor that I met. I felt like I had to be like that. And I'm like, I'm not doing that. And this is what I want you to do. I'm like, I'm not doing that. I'm not going to be like this little nerd dweeb. Oh, you know, bless the Lord, you know, calm and demure. And I'm not going to be this ego freak, you know. I'm not going to be that either. And it wasn't that the calling on my life wasn't true. The calling on my life was true. The problem was mine. You understand? I saw it and I understood it in a wrong way. And until I understood it in the right way, then and only then would I begin to do it. I've been born again of the Spirit. I was born into this kingdom through charismatic, through the power of the Spirit, right? I was a part of it for a while, became charismaniac. I got all psycho, religious, hyper, stupid, nonsensical stuff. And I left it. And with that, I left the Holy Spirit, right? Oh, I have the Holy Spirit. I mean, I, you know, I tinkle with him every now and then. I, you know, but I was not walking in fullness because I had a misunderstanding of what the application of him was, truly was. And the church gives, the, 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 the leadership of the church gives the church a false perception of who the Holy Spirit is. I mean, we think, oh, the Holy Spirit, we blow you back four rows with power. We run around, scream and shout. Okay, well, what does that do? Not much. Okay, well, we had an encounter. Great. 
You had an encounter. If you laid out on the floor for 30 minutes, you better get up and change the world. I'm serious. No, I really want to be, I want to be on this point because we worship that as if that's something. That is an encounter, yes. But if God lays you out, you're on the floor and you're knocked out. Oh, I was laid out for three days. And then the next day you're right there, laid out for three days. Dude, seriously? Get up and do something. Oh, I just had power God all over me. I had a vision from heaven. Did you do anything with it? It becomes a religious act. That's what it becomes. If you get laid out on the floor and you get up and go, I'm going to take the nation or I'm going to go into the high schools or man, God is challenging me to be different and you get up and do it, then it was a fruitful experience. If it, if it leads to nothing, it is nothing more than an exercise in vanity. I don't care how spiritual it was for you. It can be spiritual, but it must be transforming. You understand? We do the same thing with tongues. We can speak in tongues, and I love to speak in tongues until the cows come home. But until you speak in tongues in a manner that benefits and profits the kingdom, it means nothing. We speak in tongues to just look at, look at me, I'm spiritual. Shikamushai. Get in my Hyundai. You know, we walk around speaking, and we all want to think, oh, look how spiritual I am, look how spiritual I am. Are you interceding? Are you praying in the Spirit in utterances that you don't understand? And are you praying for God's purpose? You're praying in unison with the kingdom towards the Spirit. Are you exercising tongues in an issue of vanity? I mean, we got to get real with this stuff. I mean, we got to talk about the emperor that has no clothes. we got to talk about the, em- the elephant that's in the room. This is the problem, and we have to address it. And we have to bring the, the, the kingdom into the, the natural, into the supernatural. I just came from a conference. Oh, God help me. I don't want to go here, but I feel like it's a proper place to say this. And I was in a conference around people that I had the same kind of atmospheres that I had left. I felt repressed. I felt like when I sat in the room, I was there for a whole week. The pastor paid for me to come. I gave the guy a word at a, at a conference, and I gave him a prophetic word. I said, hey, I have a word for you, and I gave it to him. He's like, wow, I want you to come to my conference. He's like, I'm going to pay for everything for you. Paid for everything. Very generous. Super cool guy. Really loved him personally. But the way the ministry operates, it's not my speed, man. It's religious. And I literally, my heart was going, you know, I was like, I was like freaking out when I'm sitting there. Sherry's like, you okay? I'm like, yeah, I'm good. I'm good. Yeah, I'm all right. I was freaking out, man. Because the way they do, it's just all, it's like all like religious and oppressive and, you know, and everything. It's like, you know, it's just, it's like stereotypical Christianity. And I'm like, can we be real people? Do we got to be like these, like, like, I mean, seriously, can we be naturally supernatural or do we got to strike a pose? You know? Anyway, and they just, there's some things that went on that weren't exactly in my lane and I, I don't value that. And I just felt like it was really repressive. I was literally sick for four days. I was physically nauseous for four days. I was complete. I don't know if you thought I made, I didn't think I made sense at all last week. <laughs> I was, because I had just come back and I was like, and I listened to the message. I go, okay, it didn't make sense. But to me, when I was sharing it, I was completely dissociated from what I was saying because I was warped out from where I was coming out of. And that's fine for some people, but that's not fine for me. I've come out of that box. You know, I'm light years from that. I'm not that. I refuse to go back. You're not bringing me back to Egypt. You're not. I'm not going back to Egypt. I'm going forward into the promises, into the promised land. And people would, if you were to, some other people, me and my wife didn't have the same experience for me as me. But I had that experience, and that freaked me out, right? And so God is calling you forward. He's calling you to be who you are. He's not calling you to be who, who's, the only one stopping you is you. That's the only one stopping you. That's it. 
God has a purpose and a plan for your life, and what you need to do is confront the, confront the excuses, deal with the excuses, and step into what it is that he's telling you, even if you don't know what you're doing. Key piece, key point. Anyway, I love you. Thank you for listening to my rant. I had to get that off my chest. Okay. <laughs> Let me bless you. May the Lord bless you. Oh, I just want you to receive it. He loves you so much. I just release freedom to you. I release freedom to you like you've never known. You're going to get, I, I feel right now, and I just declare this over you, an impartation of freedom. You're going to feel so free, you're not even going to know what to do with it. You're gonna, I don't know, I just feel free. You're going to feel free. You're going to feel free. Some of you are going to feel like laughing for no reason at all. You're going to just feel joy this day. You're going to feel like when you go out and you're going to be somewhere and you're going to go, man, I just feel like I want to run. I just feel like I, you're just going to feel joy. And the Bible says, for freedom's sake, he makes you free. And so I just want to release freedom to you today. I want you to receive his love and his grace and his goodness. That he loves you beyond your level of understanding. And say this, Jesus, if you love me more than I can understand, then increase my understanding. And so, Father, I just release that to your people. I bless them today and I honor you in Jesus' name. Amen. God loves you. We love you. Have a great week. Count as long.